Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're starting a new series walking through the book of Numbers with James Jordan. Do be sure to check out those links in the show notes. In particular, we invite you to be a subscriber to our YouTube channel, where we put out weekly videos on Bible, liturgy, and culture. We are right now wrapping up a video series walking through the theology of the tabernacle with Alistair Roberts, and we will soon begin a new series with Peter Lightheart. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan giving an overview of the book of Numbers. In this lecture, we want to overview the book of Numbers. But before we do that, we will discuss briefly its place in the canon of Scripture and in covenant history as a whole. And to do that, we want to plunge right in and consider as we must at the beginning of each of these studies in the Pentateuch, God's fivefold action in history. If we go back to Genesis chapter 1, we will see that when he created the world, God engaged in what can be reduced to five separate actions, and these actions in history are not only an action of creation, but also of covenant-making. Later on, when men fall and God needs to usher in a new creation, he will go through the same steps, and the act of making a new creation would be the same as making a new covenant. At the center of our faith and practice lies this action, or right, these steps, that show us God's ways, which are also the ways of us who are his image. The first thing we see in Genesis chapter 1, after God makes the heavens and the earth, is that God lays hold of his creation. God lays hold of his creation. The next thing God does, especially on the first three days, is he divides and restructures his creation. Divides and restructures his creation. He takes hold of the waters and separates them into waters above and waters below. He takes hold of the waters and the dry land and separates them off from one another and establishes boundaries between them and gives names to the new things that he has made. Once God has taken hold of the world, divided it and restructured it and made it different, he then apportions it or distributes it. And in Genesis 1, he creates the things that he gives it to. He gives the heavens to the sun, moon, and stars. He gives the ground to land animals and to men. He gives the ocean to the fishes, and he gives, of course, everything to man. And in the course of making this act of distribution, he gives laws or directions. He tells the fish to be fruitful and multiply. He tells the sun, moon, and stars to govern the heavens. He tells man the things that he is supposed to do. And so this act of distribution is always accompanied with directions or laws. Then we see God passing judgments or evaluations on what he's done. Every day God sees what he has made and it is good, and at the climax of his week he sees everything that he has made, and behold, it's very good. And so we call these sanctions or judgments and evaluations. Of course, in Genesis chapter 1, everything is good. Later on in history, when God makes evaluations or threatens to make evaluations, 
it will have to include the possibility that things have become bad or even very bad. And finally, we see that God rests on the Sabbath day and enjoys what he has made, and this enjoyment and rest provides the opportunity to pass things on to the new heirs, who are Adam and Eve, who will take up the work that God has begun. They are his successors. And it was on the Sabbath day, the day after they were created, that God had intended to pass things on to them, give them gifts that would enable them to carry out their work, to bestow upon them the inheritance. Of course, they did not receive the inheritance, they were cast out, but the principle was the same. Now, when man does this, of course, he has to insert an extra step, and we call this the sixfold action of human work. He takes hold of the world and then gives thanks for it. That's what Adam and Eve refused to do. Take hold, give thanks, and then restructure, distribute, evaluate, and enjoy. So on the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took hold of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and restructured it. And then he renamed it, which is part of the restructuring, he called his body, and then he gave it, he distributed it to them, saying a commandment, take and eat, this is my body. And then they ate it and evaluated it and said it was good, taste and see that the Lord is good. And they enjoyed it, and Jesus talked to them about how he was going to leave, but they would be the new heirs of the kingdom. Well, the five books of Moses follow this pattern. Since they are God's action in history, they don't have that step of giving thanks. You don't thank yourself, and God doesn't thank himself. It's only when man does this action that the thanksgiving aspect is needed. But in the first book, the book of Genesis, we see fundamentally once the large covenant history begins, we see God lay hold of a people and call them to himself, and that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And essentially they are called out by God and they begin their work, and that is an emphasis in the book of Genesis. In fact, the name that God gives, the all-powerful God, El Shaddai, God Almighty, is a name that has to do with calling and initiating things. Then the book of Exodus has to do with dividing and restructuring. We have a little tape series on Exodus just like this one. It's called From Slavery to Sabbath. And in that tape series, we look at these actions of dividing and restructuring that are found in the book of Exodus. There is the symbolic dividing and restructuring that takes place in the fact that they stop worshiping at altars, their worship falls apart, and then it's restructured in form of a tabernacle. There's also the socio-political dividing and restructuring as they go from an organization of clans into an organization of tribes within one nation. And all of that we discussed in our tape series from Slavery to Sabbath. Then we come to the book of Leviticus, which is primarily concerned with laws. And in Leviticus, the kingdom is distributed to various people. The priests are given some responsibilities, the Levites are given some responsibilities, the people as a whole are given some responsibilities, and the foundational religious worship responsibilities are set out in the book of Leviticus. We tend to think of these things as less important than the socio-political rules that are found in Exodus, but that's not the way the Bible looks at it. Man's primary duty is to worship God. That's what's done on the first day of the week, the Sabbath day, and it forms the key to everything else. And so the book of Leviticus is the book of laws par excellence. 
Then we come to Numbers, and that's, of course, what we're considering here. And Numbers is the book of sanctions more than anything else, and in two ways. First of all, we'll see God evaluating his people repeatedly when they fall into sin and have to be judged, and then judgment is passed on their side and they're restored. But also, the people of Israel had been called and set apart to be God's warriors and to pass judgments themselves. And this passing of judgments is highlighted in Numbers, right in the first chapter, when the army of God is set up and called to go into the land of Canaan and bring judgment upon the Canaanites. And in fact, it's the refusal of Israel to be God's judges that causes God himself to judge them. But this passing of judgments is the major theme in the book of Numbers because it is primarily concerned with God's army. Then finally, just to round this out, we would come to Deuteronomy, and in Deuteronomy, Moses calls the people together in his old age, just before he dies, and he gives them several sermons and songs and other things to tell them that he is leaving, but that Joshua will be in charge, and he passes the kingdom on to them. And so it has to do with the time of Sabbath rest and worship, in which Moses preaches sermons to them and passes on to them their inheritance their ideological inheritance that they are to carry with them. So these are the five steps, and they correspond fairly well to the five books of the Torah. And in this way, we can see that the five books of the Torah, or Pentateuch, are a very large covenant-making exercise and constitute the old covenant, the publication of the foundational covenant that operates in the Old Testament period, although it itself undergoes changes as history moves along. Having considered then this overview and where the book of Numbers fits, let's look secondly at the theme of the book of Numbers, which is, I would say, God's new model army. God's new model army. And we want to look at three aspects of this by way of overview. The divisions in the army, the army camp, and the army as a heavenly army. First of all, the divisions in the army. Numbers will be concerned with three groups of people, the priests, the Levites, and the people. All the people were priests, that is to say all were guards. They were to guard God's holiness and execute his judgments against those he called upon them to visit with his wrath. But preeminently the priests, the Aaronic priests, were set aside for this purpose. The house of Aaron, part of the tribe of Levi, were made the priests of Israel, and Aaron himself the high priest, and then there would be a succession of high priests. And they were the guardians of the symbolic sanctuary. The land of Israel itself was to be a sanctuary guarded by God's people as a whole, Within that land there was a symbolic sanctuary, the tabernacle and later the temple, which was a world model and which was guarded by the priests. The priests were preeminently the guardians of God's holiness. The people were not allowed to go into the symbolic sanctuary. They had to wait outside, and this communicated to them that the way to God was closed in the Old Testament because of man's sin. That's changed in the New Covenant but that's the way it was under the Old Covenant. And the priests guarded God's holiness, and they were the ones who were called upon to 
bring sanctions against the Israelites when the Israelites sinned. We'll see this in Numbers when Phineas of the house of the high priests brings a sanction and kills an Israelite who is in sin and thus averts the wrath of God. The Levites helped to guard, this is the second category, they stood somewhat between the people and the priests. They also executed judgment against the people when they were in sin, and in turn the Levites were judged by the priests. The Levites were one of the Israelite tribes, and when Moses came down the mountain back in Exodus chapter 32 at the golden calf incident, the Levites stood with Moses against the people. And the Levites executed judgment upon those people who had worshipped the golden calf. And by doing so, they earned the right to be special priests in Israel. And, of course, Aaron was of the tribe of Levi, so he was a Levite. So you have the priests who guarded the symbolic sanctuary. You have the Levites who were scattered throughout Israel in local synagogues and thus maintained the holiness of God in the midst of the people. And the book of Numbers will spend time setting up the Levites as the priests of Israel in this broader sense, as the local pastors, as the local teachers. And we'll look at that when we get to it in Numbers chapters 3 and 8. But this is the second division in the army. There were the high priest and his family who stayed at the central sanctuary and did this symbolic guarding. Then there were the Levites who were scattered throughout the land and helped guard by teaching the people the words of God and guarding his holiness. And then there are the people themselves, the third division of God's new model army, who were the army, together with their leaders. And the book of Numbers will be concerned with the people and their princes who were to be the priests with a small p to guard the sanctuary with a small s, that is the land, to execute God's judgments against the heathen. And in Numbers we'll find that the people themselves had to be holy. If they were unclean, they had to be put outside the army camp until they had become cleansed ceremonially, that in time of war, or for any other particular purpose, the people could take a vow called a Nazarite vow to become particularly set aside as warriors and to become somewhat like the priests, more like the priests, more like the Aaronic and Levitical priests. At any rate, it's a little bit hard to talk about this because all were priests, but some are more priests than others in the Old Testament. And the three divisions of the army were the Aaronic priests, the Levites, and the people. And we'll have to observe them as we go through the book of Numbers. Second thing by way of overview here on the theme of God's new model army is to realize that the camp of Israel was like the Garden of Eden. The camp of Israel in the midst of the wilderness was like the Garden of Eden in the midst of the world. We'll see this when we see the symbolic structure and arrangement of the camp. The throne of God was put in the midst, the Levites were grouped around it, and then the tribes grouped around them in a four-square pattern. And this is fundamentally the Edenic pattern, and it creates similarity between the camp and Eden. Similarly, just as in the Garden of Eden, when people sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned, they had to be put out. So there's a stress in the book of Numbers on putting out those who had committed sins, they had to be purged, or who had fallen into ceremonial uncleanness. Anything that didn't fit with the Garden of Eden was out. 
A third aspect of the Garden of Eden structure is the relationship of subordinates to leaders. Eve was made a helper fit for Adam. She didn't work out very well, but then Adam didn't work out very well as a guard. But the relationship between the guardian and the assistant is there in the Garden of Eden, and it's there in the army camp as well, except that it's the junior officers who are like Eve. It's not strictly a male and female principle when we transfer from the domestic Eden environment to the military army environment. In the domestic environment, it's the male-female relationship that's involved, husband and wife. In the army camp environment, it's the leaders and subordinates. And that's a major theme in the book of Numbers. The Levites were to assist the priests, and the elders from the tribes were to assist Moses in their respective duties. And we will find rebellion on both fronts. We'll find Aaron and Miriam, particularly Miriam, rebelling against Moses. We'll find Korah, Dathan, and Abiram who were rebelling against Moses. We'll find the other tribes rebelling against Aaron and his position as the head of the church. And so we will find a lot of Eves being seduced by Satan and rebelling against their Adams. And we'll also find Adams failing to guard. So that will be a major theme here. The Edenic theme of the New Model Army and particularly how judgment is to be exercised within the army. A final aspect of this that we won't have time to do much with because it's hard to know exactly how much to do with it is that the book of Numbers hints that the Israelites were a heavenly army. We should expect this because God had made a promise to Abraham that his seed would be not only like the sand of the seashore for multitude but also like the stars of the heavens. And there are numerological indications in the genealogies, the genealogical registers, that there's a fulfillment of that in numbers, in the arrangement of the tribes around God's throne. There's a good deal of astral symbolism. Similarly, in Numbers 15, we'll find that all the Israelites were to wear wings on their garments with blue tassels that would seem to indicate at least to my way of thinking, based on my study of this, this indicates that they wore clothing that was like angels, like cherubim. And the blue hinted that they were positioned in the firmament heaven, that is, above the world. This is standard biblical symbolism, that the rulers of the world are positioned in the heavenlies. And if the blue tassel on the wings of their garments indicates this, then again, the army of Israel was like an angelic army. It was God's heavenly host, part of his heavenly host. And in that case, the sand trek was also a star trek. At any rate, we should expect them to be a heavenly army, and there are hints of it in the book of Numbers in addition to other things as well. So, the book of Numbers is going to be concerned with Israel as an army, exercising sanctions, and then having sanctions exercised against it when it fails. Third thing we need to look at by way of overview is what I'm calling cycles and sanctions. The book of Numbers is organized cyclically, particularly when we take it with Exodus and Leviticus. The same events that have already happened happen again twice in Numbers. In Exodus we have a departure from Egypt, we have a time of rebellion, we have an arrival at a particular site, we have a fall and a judgment and a restoration. And this happens again twice in Numbers. 
And we call this a typological principle, the typological principle that there is repetition of events and then there's variation with the repetition. And events repeat themselves over and over again because human nature is constant, but these repetitions are different each time because history is real. And there are events in the life of Abraham that are repeated in the life of Jacob, that are repeated in the life of Moses, and then they find their fulfillment when they're repeated in the life of Jesus Christ. And of course that's what enables us to see Christ in the Old Testament in many places is the typological principle that events, certain stages of events, are repeated. And the way to interpret this is to look at the repetition and find the similarities so that we get the model, but then also look at the variations. And as I said, there is a wilderness pattern in the book of Numbers of fall and restoration that will repeat a couple of times and we've already seen in Exodus. And we can briefly set out six aspects of it here. We may go into more detail as we go through, but first of all, there's the departure from a place as an army. Israel left Egypt as an army, marching in martial array. They left Mount Sinai as an army. And then after 40 years of wandering, they left the plains of Moab as an army. Then there's an incident of rebellion. When they arrived at Sinai from Egypt, on the way there were rebellion incidents where they complained about food and water. Similarly, when they left Mount Sinai, there were rebellion incidents. And similarly, at the end of the 40 years, there were rebellion incidents when God called them back to get going again. Third, we find that they come to a place and stay there for a while, and there's a golden calf type of incident. People left Egypt, complained along the way, and then got to Mount Sinai, and then they fell into sin at a golden calf type of incident. Similarly, they left Mount Sinai, they complained along the way, and they came to Kadesh, and then they sinned and refused to go into the land. Finally, after 40 years, they left Kadesh, they complained along the way, and they came to the plains of Moab. I think I misspoke myself a moment ago. They left Kadesh, they rebelled along the way, and they came to the plains of Moab, and then they committed spiritual fornication with the Midianite and Moabite women. So following on each one of these is judgment. God judged them at Mount Sinai at the golden calf, a light of jealousy. That happens again at Kadesh when they refuse to go into the land. And it happens again with the Moabite and Midianite women. And again it's the Levites who execute judgment there. In each case we find Moses interceding for the people and some type of restoration and the promise is renewed. God renews the covenant and writes the Ten Commandments again after the golden calf incident. After their rebellion at Kadesh Barnea, God says that they cannot go into the promised land, but in Numbers chapter 15, he reiterates the law to them and promises them that they will come into the land eventually. And similarly, toward the end of the book of Numbers, after they sin with Moab, God repeats the covenant to them and gives them rules on the calendar and how they're to keep the feast, and thus restores them to his fellowship. And so this pattern of departure and rebellion, sojourn in a particular place, a golden calf, judgment, intercession and restoration, and then finally a renewal of the promise, a law section where God gives his promise again, that cycles through three times. And it's a way in which God comments on the fall of man and the grace of redemption.
Now, at this point, it will be useful, I think, to look at the outline that you have, theological outline, of the book of Numbers. I think it's good for us to get an outline in our minds because Numbers is a relatively unknown book. We're familiar with some of the stories, the fiery serpents, the rebellion of Korah, but we're not familiar with very much the refusal of the people to go into the land, the report of the spies, but not very much that's in Numbers is very familiar. And you'll notice that in this outline I have given basically three cycles of recreation and fall. Let's look at it just briefly. In chapters 1 through 10, we have a recreation section where man is reconstituted as an atom and put back into a Garden of Eden and called to follow God and do what God wants. And then we have a fall and judgment. In the recreation section, the first six chapters had to do with the new Adam. The warriors are set out, the Levites are set out, and rules are given for cleansing the camp to keep this Adam pure. And then in chapters 7 and 8, we have the Garden of Eden set out as the showbread is set up and the lampstand is set up and the priests and the Levites are set up to guard this symbolic Eden. Well, that goes on into chapter 9 with Passover. And then the end of chapters 9 and 10, we have discussion of the glory cloud and the trumpets. The trumpets represent the glory cloud. And this has to do with following God and doing what he says, following his lead. And so all of this is very positive, and what it does is it reestablishes man. Various divisions of the army are set up. Man is set back in the garden and gotten back on his task of following God and doing what God wants him to do. Now, predictably, we will have a fall, you see. Adam fell right away, and he fell in connection with food. And falling in connection with food is a major theme in Exodus and Numbers. And so we'll have it. We'll find that the people complain, and fire breaks out against them. We find that they complain about the food. They're tired of the manna. And so God brings judgment on them for that, but then they are restored through Moses' intercession. Then in chapter 12, we have another form of the fall, which was rebellion against authority. Satan used the animal to rebel against his human masters. Eve rebelled against Adam, and Adam rebelled against God. There was rebellion at each point on the part of the helpers. And here, Miriam and Aaron rebel against Moses in Numbers chapter 12, but then they're restored again. Then we've come to another major fall, and this time an expulsion, so to speak, from the Garden of Eden. The people flat refuse to go into the Promised Land. And when that happens, God judges them in such a way as to say that they have provoked him ten times and now they're going to wander in the wilderness until a new generation is raised up. In connection with this, in Numbers chapter 15, God renews his promise to them, but tells them it's going to take a while before they are going to be able to receive the inheritance. And then sort of to cap it off, now that they've been, so to speak, expelled from the Garden of Eden and told that they can't possess it, they can't have it, then we have the sin of Cain, a worsening situation that brings about what is equivalent to the flood. At the flood, everybody died 
except Noah and his family. And during the 40 years, everybody dies except the children who grow up to inherit. And we see these continual rebellions and judgments in chapters 16 and 17. And the climax of the passage at the end of 17 is, Everyone who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Are we to perish completely? Behold, we perish. We are dying. We are all dying. And that's quite true, even as at the flood. Well, in chapter 18, we begin a new section, a recreation section. And Adam is set back up in chapters 18 and 19. We have rules for Aaron, rules for the Levites, and chapter 19, rules for the people and how they are to function and be clean. And so the army is cleansed and set back up. And that leads us to the end of the 40 years. And Miriam dies. We have a series of transitions here. The deaths of the old people make way for the new people. The most important of these is the death of Aaron as the high priest. And we have this in chapter 20. Again, we have a sin in connection with food. And again, we have intercession. Well, it's not actually set out as intercession here, but we have a transition to grace. When Aaron dies, the death of the high priest always has to do with liberation from bondage, as we'll see. And the death of Aaron liberates them from their bondage to the wilderness, and now they are free to go into the promised land. And so immediately in chapter 21, they fight Canaanites and defeat them and have a total victory over the Canaanites. And so it's as if they are set right back up where they should have been all along. And then they fall again. It says that they fell because they were impatient, verse 4. And that's one of the primary things that Adam and Eve were guilty of. God had told them that they would eventually be able to eat of the tree of knowledge because every tree was for them sooner or later. But they were impatient. And so here is a fall that's connected with impatience. But God forgives them when they repent, gives them the brazen serpent, and they journey on to the land of Moab in chapter 21. And they fight against Og and Sihon, and they have certain victories along the way. Then in chapters 22, 23, 24, and 25, we have the story of Balaam, which is kind of curious. It shows the wider worldwide situation in which Israel found itself, and we'll have to look at it in more detail when we get there. There is an attempt on the part of Balaam to curse Israel, but he's simply unable to do so because God won't permit him. So what he does is he arranges for Israel to bring judgment upon itself by sending the Midianite women into their midst. And here we have a fall of infidelity. The people commit spiritual whoredom, just as Adam and Eve did in the garden by listening to the serpent rather than to the Lord. And then there has to be restoration. So we have these succession of falls and restorations, each of which gives us a slant on the fall of man. And this, by the way, is the equivalent of the golden calf incident because it has to do with spiritual fornication. Well, then we have another new creation section. The people are restored, but to end the book out, we have one final recreation section. And here we have another census. And that again has to do with reconstituting an atom. 
In chapter 26, we have the census and the divisions of the families. Adam is reconstituted in chapter 27. We have to do with inheritance and succession. And there again, the idea is of a new Adam. Then we have in chapters 28 and 29, I call this a new Eden section because it has to do with when you eat your meals, your ceremonial sacrificial meals. They're all set out here, what things are offered. And there again, that's what Adam and Eve were to do in the garden. It's all phrased in terms of what they ate. They were to eat with God first and not with Satan. And so again, we are reconstituting the world once again. In chapter 30, we have rules for vows, particularly vows for women, because of their subordinate status in the family. The woman can have her vows canceled by her father or her husband or sustained. And there are a whole bunch of rules there. And again, this has to do, in my opinion, with the relationship of Adam and Eve. And again, we're reconstituting humanity. And then, at the end of the book, the last six chapters, the conquest of Eden begins. They go in to conquer the land of Eden now that they are constituted as an army. And we have a war against Midian. We have rules of the booty. In chapter 32, we have the conquest east of the Jordan River. Chapter 33, we have a theology of wandering. And at the end of the chapter, we have rules for apportioning the land. Chapter 34, we have boundaries for the land. Chapter 35, we have Levitical cities in the land. Chapter 36, we have a discussion of inheritance in the land. So all of it has to do with the land of Eden and how it's taken over and how it's set up and constituted. So the book closes with this recreation theme and leads us then, of course, to the book of Deuteronomy, which will transfer the succession to a new generation in a more formal sense. Well, that's an overview of the book of Numbers. One other thing we might just put up front here is call your attention to the chronology of Leviticus Numbers in Deuteronomy that's found. And if you look at it and study it, you'll find that some of the events in Numbers overlap one another. And when we get to Numbers chapter 7, we'll find that the princes, when they give their offerings, that goes back and happens actually during the book of Leviticus. But we will glance at that when we get to it. But that's the chronology of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And you may wish to consult that as you read the book. So what we've seen is that the major theme in Numbers is God's army to bring sanctions upon the world, an army that he himself has to bring sanctions on. And Israel is set up as this army with leaders and subordinates with three different categories of people. And in the book of Numbers, we'll see the army being set up and then falling into sin and being judged and then being set up again. And this will happen several times and give us different perspectives on what it means to be created as God's image and as his warriors to fall into sin and rebellion and to be restored. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. 
that's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.